Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. And we take a serious look at the existential threats to the America we know and love. The threats at home and abroad. Threats both moral and political on the one hand and military and foreign policy wise on the other hand. Joining me today, John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and former White House chief of staff under President George H.W. Bush. I'll ask him about the Kavanaugh confirmation. Will it happen? What about the sexual misconduct allegations? As a former chief of staff, how would he handle a White House constantly under attack? Also, we'll continue our conversation with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. We'll continue to look at California as it continues to lead the way or point us to a no exit in the American way of life. Last Saturday, I spoke at the Values Voter Summit. This is sponsored by the Family Research Council and others. Uh, it's a great event. I love doing it. I've been doing it forever. And um, it was a wonderful opportunity. And I tried to gather my thoughts about the president and the country and the degree of um, division in the country, particularly as manifest in people's denunciations and worse of him. So I lay it out. I start with a stupid joke, but you'll forgive that. Listen, tell me what you think. And then uh, I got some commentary that I need your help in uh, sorting out the, the big answer to the big question. Okay, here goes. Good morning, everybody. I was the Secretary of Education, right? Sit still. Keep your hands to yourself. Okay. I, um, Gil mentioned the true St. Nicholas. It is a, a book about the true St. Nicholas, uh, the origins of Santa Claus. It was a real person, a real saint, uh, a bishop of the church, uh, my church, a good bishop of the church, unlike some today. Uh, a true and faithful bishop, so you might find it worthwhile. I have serious business to talk to you about this morning. We're in serious times, but I'm going to start with a joke. I have noticed among really intelligent people that the really smart ones like really corny jokes. So to impress you with how smart I am, I have a really corny joke. The president, while in North Carolina, hugging that boy, the boy's friend was there and took out a water pistol. Well, the sign of any kind of gun, Secret Service reacts. And one of the Secret Service agents yelled, Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse. Situation ended, it was over. Supervisor came up to the Secret Service agent and said, what the heck are you doing? What's Mickey Mouse? He said, I meant Donald Duck and I got confused. <laughs> So that's really bad. And my appreciation of it suggests I'm really smart, right? Or maybe not. I don't have to tell you that we are now in an odd and stressful time. I speak about the American people. I speak about our president. So we are here with this man. And let's be honest, this man is bluff, cantankerous, occasionally brutish, occasionally uncouth, often raffish, thin-skinned, tempestuous, sometimes even impulsive, would you say? He is often unpolished and sometimes indelicate. And he is doing wonderful things for this country. And for its citizens, and for its children, and for the unborn, and for our prosperity and our safety and our well-being, and for the idea and the reality of a true sovereign nation. And yet daily he is subject to an unparalleled degree and measure of assault, obloquy, character assassination, and contumely. Unlike anyone who has preceded him, all 43 of them, by the way, excuse me, former professor, it is 43, not 44, because Grover Cleveland was both the 22nd and the 24th president of the United States, and he is the same person each time, more or less. So 44 presidencies, but only 43 different presidents or people. I digress. <clears throat> Mrs. Frankfurter used to say of Justice Frankfurter, Felix makes two mistakes when he speaks. First, he digresses from his text, and second, he returns to it. <laughs> I repeat, this president is subject to an unparalleled degree and measure of assault, obloquy, character assassination, and contumely, unlike anyone who has gone before him, and like, unlike any of the 43 before. He is daily, routinely, and habitually condemned 
by his political opponents, both within his own party and unanimously by the other party, by the mass media, by the established bastions of power in Washington, by the intellectuals, the pundits, the academics, and many of those who are just filled with their own deep grievance of one sort or another, grievance against life or against men or against God or against family or even against America. And the weapons, scurrilous books, anonymous editorials, a subversive leadership of a government law enforcement agency, corrupt intelligence officials. Even now we learn perhaps the wearing of hidden wires in the Oval Office of his own people. But he withstands. And he gets up in the morning early, and yes, often has, by the book, an unhealthy but excellent breakfast. <laughs> I have seen it in person. He once offered me a pure pork sausage link off his plate. <laughs> Those of you who know me, Gary Bauer, did I take it? Yes. yes. <laughs> no hesitation from my undersecretary. When I'm taking food from Bauer, that's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> and after that cholesterol load, the president tweets, sometimes shrewdly, sometimes not. And yes, he watches some TV. And then he goes to work in his office or in the flooded shallows of North Carolina or in Singapore or at our border with Mexico. He's an imperfect man with an imperfect past. And who knows of his future? No one. And as has been well said, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So we shall see. But we must add that of both sinner and saint, and of all of us in between, we all have a present. What does that present tell us about this president? It tells us, among other things, this. He has expanded the Mexico City policy forbidding funding of international aid programs that promote abortion. Earlier this year, he created a new conscience and religious freedom division in the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights to enforce both existing laws protecting the rights of conscience for medical personnel. And he has nominated and had confirmed 18 district and appellate judges likely sympathetic to the right to life. He has authorized a letter to the states that makes it easier for them to exclude Planned Parenthood facilities from their Medicaid programs. He has proposed regulations to allow health care providers to refuse to perform services that conflict with their religious and moral beliefs. As he, <clears throat> as he said from the Rose Garden to the marchers on the day of the Right to Life march, in my administration, we will always defend the very first right in the Declaration of Independence, and that is the right to life. Anything else? You bet. Plenty. I realize what I've done here this morning is not the usual order, so let's revert to the normal script. Nearly three million new jobs have been created since he took office. He has restored confidence in the American economy. Confidence among both consumers and businesses has reached a historic high. He has rolled back unnecessary job-killing regulations beyond even his expectations and promises. A hundred different days have each marked a record for the Dow since he became president. He has kept promises there and elsewhere. He has, in fact, as promised, moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. He has... He has, in fact, as promised, ordered an end to United States participation in the atrocious Iran deal. And he has begun the process of reimposing sanctions on Iran, sanctions that have been lifted or waived. He has canceled all involvement in the derisory International Criminal Court. 
he has, as promised, withdrawn from the Paris Accords on climate change. And... And he has secured historic increases in defense spending to rebuild our proud military with the resources that it needs after years of harmful reductions and sequester. Believe me, this father of a United States Marine who stands before you, I am thankful for that. And he has tried mightily to fulfill a major set of promises on other things. Despite obstruction from Congress, he has worked to take control of our border and to change our immigration laws and to enforce sensibly the laws on the books. He has called on Congress to provide the resources needed to secure those borders, which they have not done. He wants that wall, and I do not believe he will give up trying to get that wall. And this man, yes, this imperfect man, has done something which I said during the campaign to friends who are now never Trumpers and maybe not friends anymore, which I said during the campaign would be all by itself sufficient to guarantee my vote for him. Not only has he confirmed the most circuit court judges of any president in his first year, circuit court judges of a conservative bent, he has, and this was and is to me, still at once a necessary and sufficient condition of getting my support. He has nominated and had confirmed a conservative judge, Neil Gorsuch, to become Justice Gorsuch of the United States Supreme Court. And I believe if the Senate, follow Margaret Thatcher's advice, do not go wobbly, if the Senate does not go wobbly, he will gain the confirmation of judge to Justice Brett Kavanaugh as well. May I note that in this process of the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, you see all the ugliness, malignity, treachery, and duplicity of the president's opponents. President's opponents. It is right out there in the open, in public. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, as Justice Brandeis said, and we are observing by its illumination the depths to which his opponents will go to defeat him and the men and women he has chosen. Let us hope the sunlight does its work. Late last night, I received a text from my son. It was one page that someone had put together. It's a one-page text, and though brief, it tells a profound story. It contrasts two men. One, a man accused when he was a young man in his teens of being forceful and overly aggressive with a woman. No proof is offered. This man is reviled by the left and declared guilty. The other man was a man of the United States Senate. Drunk, he drives his car off a bridge into the water while a young woman is with him. He leaves her to drown and to die. He later decides to run for president and is called the Lion of the Senate by that same left, and he is celebrated. That is all you need to know about the present situation and the left. Let me, uh, let me end where I began, and I give up the remainder of my time to the fabulous Mark Meadows. We'll follow. I end where I began. Here we are with this guy, this guy from Queens. I'm from Brooklyn. I know how to talk to him. <laughs> sort of. He said, uh, I'll give you three minutes. I said, I need five. He said, turned to people around him and said, oh, Bill Bennett said I need five. I guess I've got to give him five. I guess I better give him five. <laughs> Last year, he preceded me to this podium. I followed him. And as he walked off, I said, thanks for warming the crowd up for me, Mr. President. <clears throat> I know, a little fresh, but that's Brooklyn, that's Queens. Anyway, I know this guy. I end where I began. Here we are with this bluff, cantankerous, occasionally brutish, occasionally uncouth, raffish, tough-talking, thin-skinned, tempestuous, unpolished, and yes, sometimes indelicate leader who is doing great things for this country and its citizens, for its children, 
for its unborn, for its prosperity and its safety and its well-being. But alas, as has been said, this is too often a story never told in the media. Now you take a man in the totality of his actions. Shakespeare says of Antony, his taints and honors waged equal with him. His taints and honors waged equal with him. What of our president's balance between taints and honors? For me, the honors of the president vastly outweigh the taints. And they outweigh the taints and alleged taints of both the past and the present. Vastly. I am with him. Thank you. All right, Claude, I, I thought that would be worth playing. The audience will tell us now whether it was worth playing. <laughs> I think so. I mean, number one, great job by you. Thanks. I well, mean, what a speech. I worked good. on it. I worked yeah. on it. Um, didn't wing it. Knew it would be on national TV. It was on C-SPAN, then C-SPAN 2. And it was about the president, so I wanted to get it right. And I wanted to get certain things right. I should have. The joke, I, Mrs. Bennett was tough on me afterwards. <laughs> should, that was good. That was a B. <laughs> Well, some other friends of hers called her and said, oh, it was great. It was an A, A plus. So she said, I don't know. I said, she's tough, but that's, you know, it's part of what you're married for. Right. Yeah. Yes. What is the one word most used by couples who've been married more than 20 years? The one word? Yeah. Oh, man, I don't know. What? What? (laughs) What? Sometimes it's repeated. What? 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 Anyway. Uh, and, And she said the joke, you know, the guy says Mickey Mouse, and when he says the supervisor said, why'd you say that? He should say, I meant to say, Donald Duck. Right. And mm-hmm. I said, Donald Duck. Yeah. So oh, he's got a whole. Yeah, so it's clear you're saying duck. duck. Yeah. Donald yeah. Trump. Right. Anyway. <laughs> so okay. it was the ex- execution of the joke that she yeah, felt joke, you could have yeah, done a little better. The joke is corny okay. and did the job, but execution. Okay. But I just want to stress the uh, where we are. And um, you'll hear folks from John Sununu. We talk about this. We talk a little bit about it with Joel Farkas, too. We're in a very tough place, very mean place right now, very, very mean street corner in America. And uh, I was saying to, to Lane last night, Mrs. Bennett, we were sitting there watching the Kavanaugh interview on Fox. And I said, this is just one brutal town, just brutal. And you know, the rest of the country's not as brutal as this town. Right. Yep. People don't. Right after the interview, we read about Ted Cruz and his wife, Heidi, going to a restaurant I've been to here in town. Nice place, Italian place. And they got run out of it, you know, confronted by people. And it was just too unpleasant. There's just no point in staying. And we've got to get beyond this. And I'd like the audience to tell me how we get beyond this. You've heard my thoughts. You've heard my analysis, at least as pertains to the president. But, of course, all this bile directed against the president spills over into other things. This is not the only place where the bile goes. It obviously is instantiated in this whole series of accusations against Kavanaugh. And, you know, we will see it in other places and other circumstances. What do we do about it? How do we drain the swamp? How do we get rid of the poison? How do we cauterize the wound? How do we get back to being one country? I, I, you know, I, I intentionally wanted John Sununu on, and you will hear him say, because he was always a deflator of pretentious talk. Uh, very good for that. He's a guy who sees the world the way it is. He's an engineer um, and, you know, does not uh, chase misty ideas and, uh, you know, people's uh, imaginary uh, ideas of uh, what's wrong with things. But he said we're in a terrible crisis and agreed with uh, our friend Alan Gelzo from Gettysburg that other than the Civil War, this is the worst it's been. Accentuated by the media, not just the new social media, but by the traditional media, by the New York Times publishing an anonymous editorial, by the New Yorker publishing an article they wouldn't have published 20 years ago with no corroboration about this second woman who accuses Kavanaugh. I want to hear from my audience. I want to hear from you. That's where I get so many of my ideas and bad jokes and other things. (laughs) How do we lance the boil? How do we fix this? How do we get back to being one country? Would love your thoughts on it. I'm not giving up by any means. No right, stretch. Right, right. It's America, and the American capacity for self-renewal is always there. Um, I think it's some combination of returning to our roots, our first principles, um, the statement of the obvious, uh, our belief in a in, in God, and in in our that we are a spiritual and religious people, the belief in our founding principles, 
And, uh, of course, they need to be taught. you have initial thoughts on this? It's interesting because, uh, you know, when you talk about how can you get back, you know, I would assume that in order to get back, one thing, you would need everyone to want to be back to one country. I'm not sure if everybody does. I'm not sure if there aren't some who likes the divide and anyone who's not on their side, they just want to push them out, leave them out. You know, they, they they don't want you in the restaurants. They're going to yell and scream till you leave. I'm not sure if the desire for the one country is is supported by both. Now, they may say it, but, you know, your actions have to line up with that. I can't say, yeah, I want civility, but then you're the least civil in a discussion where someone doesn't agree with you. I also think in the uh, speech, uh, when you brought out the, um, the one pager that you said when your son sent to you the night before, the convenient morality, you know, the, the when it's convenient for the argument, you know, they want to present all these uh, 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 morals. And it's an well, they obviously answer. looked away from all these questions of <laughs> pouncing on and, and being aggressive, if not murderous and grossly negligent with women in the case of Teddy Kennedy and mm-hmm. the case, case of Bill Clinton. Oh, absolutely. And then here with just just the, the most thin of accusations and no evidence from what I understand no, and not even any other you know third party corroboration no, no, like they just no one see and even the accusers themselves say a little foggy about it but I think so you know it's, you know I was thinking when you said you're not sure people want the unification of the country mm-hmm. I was thinking how deep does this hatred this vitriol this vituperation go people I heard Democrats and others saying and if he's not confirmed, we will continue the investigation and drive him from the appeals court. See? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're going to wreck his life. So you talk about people hesitating to go into public life. Mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm. We shall see. We shall see. Audience, please drop us a line. How do they write us, Claude? I have no oh, yeah, idea. Just how uh, email should... us, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. BillBennettPodcast at yes. gmail.com. That's a lot to remember. Uh, no, well, it's the name of the, the show. So Bill Bennett podcast. Bill Bennett, I can gmail. remember. Podcast <laughs> right. at gmail.com. Yes. Mm-hmm. All lowercase. Well, and once they Does send. case matter? No, it doesn't matter. But once they send one email. I always ask these things. I ask the same things every time. Yeah, but once they send one email, all they have to do is just type in Bill Bennett and show up. And they'll show up. Yeah, in the yeah. email. Right. That's fine. All right, good. Let's get to our guests. Let's get to John Sununu. Let's get to Joel Farkas. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Let's welcome back to the show John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and former White House chief of staff under President George H.W. Bush. I want to talk about, uh, I got a tweet this morning from a listener who said, he said, I know you like to talk about Iran. I know you like to talk about you know, the Middle East, the Taliban. He said, but I'm worried about the country. Democrats seem to be willing to destroy a good man's life and family in order to hold on to power. This to me... Mark Young says, demonstrates the depravity of their very souls. They are a bigger risk to freedom than any foreign power. Is what's going on now, case of Judge Kavanaugh or things related to that, the FBI, whatever, a real threat to freedom, to our existence as a, as a free republic? Well, you have a Democratic Party that, on the most basic sense, on the economic side, is running to socialism. Uh, socialism undermines democracy. Uh, you have a Democratic Party that is not only willing to destroy a Supreme Court nominee, but is exploiting uh, the woman who was the accuser. Uh, she did not want to be public. She did not want to have to testify. Uh, the Democrats have maneuvered the leaking and, and the pressure on her to the point where, where she's being forced to do something she didn't want to do by the Democrats. I said uh, the other day, it's unconscionable what the Democrats are doing to this woman. They will go to any end to achieve uh, a political victory, and that uh, is is just so contrary to what this country is all about. Will this pass? Is this a trend that's getting worse and worse? You know, how do we put it back together? I mean, you're a great person to ask, because you're a guy who is good at deflating balloons when people get hyperbolic and say, oh, this is it, and it's terrible, it's awful, and you say, well, wait, wait, calm down, you know, things will, things will settle. Will things settle on this we're, front we're or making- these fronts? 
What's making it a little different this time, Bill, normally the natural pendulum of public awareness tends to write these these swings. But this time, there is the unknown amplification factor of uh, social media. And, and social media acts in a very perverse way. It, it allows cells of people to talk to each other uh, and to create their own universe so that the correcting pressures can't penetrate uh, into the conversation. And and uh, I, I think we're seeing this right now. When when you talk to, to the people that are supporting this attack on Kavanaugh, let's just take the Hollywood stars. They have never met this woman. They have never heard of a word from her mouth. They have never seen this woman. And uh, they are uh, in, in their own little universe citing her as, as a courageous little martyr. Now, this I feel bad for this woman. I, I feel that she may have a sincere perception in her head about the issue, uh, but, but her perception does not necessarily correspond to reality. And all these folks jumping on, on into this little universe of support are receiving no other messages other than the ones they're sending to each other. Case in point, maybe this New Yorker article about the second accuser journalistic standards. Um, I mean, you talk about no countervailing pressure or correcting counter pressure. An article appears about this woman who says she's not sure it was Brett Kavanaugh who exposed himself to her or worse. Uh, she takes six days to think about it and then comes forward. But all of the people no, she... she didn't. Bill, she didn't think about it. She spent six days with Democratic okay. operatives. Okay. Okay. There's a difference between sitting six yep. days and thinking about it and, and having six days of public of, of pressure. And that's my point about the, when I pointed out with the first lady who was the accuser. Uh, the Democrats are pressuring these women into doing things they don't want to do. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's go back to the bigger picture. My friend Alan Gelzo, who uh, teaches at Gettysburg College and for a while visited Princeton, taught both my sons there. Great historian. Historian of the Civil War talks about the Great Divide and says, other than the Civil War, this is the greatest divide, the greatest break in unity of the country, the current circumstance that we are in now. Uh, more balkanization, more us and them than we've ever seen before in American history, except for that period. He's probably right. Uh, I, 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 I am so, so concerned uh, about what is happening uh, in the schools um, and the and the younger generation that's coming out with, without without uh, the benefit of, of, of a reference point of what this country is all about, how the country functions. And so it doesn't take much of a divide uh, to be able to be amplified into the greatest divide. Yeah, you know, that's my reference point, too, John, as you know, uh, when I talk about the country, I say, how can people understand the country if they don't know it? There was a great line by a Jefferson lecture during it, actually during the George Her Herbert Walker Bush era, who said, uh, you remain alien to yourself in a country in which your past is denied. These kids don't learn anything about American history, or if they do, they often learn from Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the American Republic, sold several million copies. It's a left-wing history of America. How are you going to defend or love this country if you don't know it? I, you know, people talk about the colleges all the time. I drive it back to the schools. I think you do too. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's the same problem. It's a, it's, and, and unfortunately, um, it, it's the most difficult problem to correct uh, because you have an established network of education bureaucrats uh, that are in control of the system and, and they have an agenda. If this period is what we describe... How uh, how do we get it back together again? How do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? How do do we need a a great leader to come forward and who speaks to both sides? It's hard to imagine someone who could get the support of both sides now. Who would that be? Uh, it seems to me the president's doing a very good job in lots of ways and should be celebrated by both sides. But he's surely not, but not on the basis of his achievements, but on the basis of him being him, him being he, him being Donald Trump. So how does how does it work at this? Someone emerge uh, a different person uh, in four years, eight years, twelve years puts the thing back together again, or does it go from the bottom up, or do we need all these work pressures at the same time? You need everything. Uh, this is not a simple problem. Look, and this is where the travesty of the uh, Obama Brennan uh, uh, Comey crowd in creating 
this in climate of investigation and the investigation, this is the, the most serious outcome of what they did. Uh, they handcuffed the president uh, into to even being more aggressive in talking about the divide. And, and uh, un- until that albatross is removed from his back, um, he is not going to be addressed to be able to address what we're talking about in a way uh, that is politically effective. And and so um, I think an individual can do it. Um, I think uh, a series of individuals is even better. And and frankly, uh, the other piece of it, which you say from the bottom up, uh, it's all of us who have to keep talking to our friends and neighbors and putting the, the conversational pressure on it. We don't use social media as well as the opposition does, and it's no. time for us to begin doing that. Talking about President Trump, you were chief of staff to President George. Herbert Walker Bush, you took a lot of incoming. The president took a lot of incoming, a lot of criticism. But have you ever seen anything like what's going on now in terms of the, the no. criticism? No, no. It, it's but it's not. It, Bill, it's not criticism. Criticism no. usually has has uh, has an issue or, yeah. or a policy that somebody's attacking. This is all personal. This is vindictiveness. This is this is uh, the politics of personal destruction. Uh, uh, it is unbelievable. Anything goes uh, with a media that has gone crazy. Uh, the president talks about fake news. Uh, un- un- in an odd way, it's important that he identified it, but in an odd way, um, uh, he hurt himself by identifying it because it gives them another reason to attack him. Yeah. Uh, but there are two different worlds out there. If you if you turn to the liberal television stations, they're, they're, they're operating in their own universe. Yes. Uh, and and they, are, they are amplifying the Little universes of social media that we talked about, uh, and and this stuff all feeds together. That's the scary part to me that that the public discourse uh, is so vindictive and personal and 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 hateful uh, that that we're creating a legitimacy of, of of doing things to the extreme that I think is poisoning the well for a long, long time. You know, it, it, something occurred to me the other day. Um, it may just be the you know that I'm getting antiquated here, obsolescent, but there was a time in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s when I was not in government that I was asked to participate in debates on universities or other places. And I remember debating Geraldine Ferraro, debated Mario Cuomo probably a dozen times, Chris Matthews, other people. And the forum was, you know, two people debating. Uh, We weren't Lincoln Douglas, but it was set up for people to speak and then have questions back and forth and then questions from the audience. It doesn't happen anymore. At least it doesn't happen to me. I understand James Carville and Mary Madeline are still on the road. This is a vaudeville show that will never stop, you know. Yeah. But that notion of a, an open forum where you have two sides, that's just what you just said coincided with what I was thinking the other day. Yeah. When's the last time you saw a real debate uh, between oh, people? It's interesting. You remember the problem Middlebury had when they brought yeah, um, Charles Murray, Charles Murray in, and and it turned to violence. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Middlebury um, decided that they wanted to show that they could have different views on campus, and and they asked Barney Frank and me to come and debate. Uh-huh. And we did that last year. Uh huh. Well, that's good. Uh, uh, and it was a real debate. And and you know Barney Frank and I uh, have uh, about zero coincidence on any issue. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but uh, we did it. Um, the, the, the point I want to make, though, uh, is that most of the audience, I would say 70% of the audience, uh, 65, 70% of the audience, were, were townspeople who came in to watch. Uh, there, there weren't that many students willing to come in and listen to both sides. Uh, there was no violence. It went off well. Uh, but but we actually found out, uh, I actually found out that some of the teachers were telling them not to go. That is what you're yeah. talking about. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Sir. That is what you're talking about, that, that they are telling them not to listen to to uh, both sides of an issue. And, and Bill, this is creeping into to science and technology. Is there it? Are, oh, God, yeah. Look at the climate issue. The, 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 you, you try and have a debate on climate. 
and, and, and the science behind climate, and you present the data, and, and uh, you're accused of, of being a denier, and it's unbelievable. Uh, and it has crept into the most prestigious universities in the country. Yeah, we've uh, we've heard about this uh, some in, in this new book by Heather MacDonald. She talks about this corruption of the sciences. Alan Bloom wrote in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, if the effort to um, you know ga- engage in political correctness had started in the sciences, it would have never gotten its legs. But maybe it's getting its legs now. Oh, it's getting its legs there now. Alan's book was, uh, you know, uh, yeah. an eye-opener to what was happening. Um, uh, it's probably the first time I appreciated the breadth of what's, hap- what's happening in, in education and, and, and public discourse. Um, and, and, and everything he identified in there has gotten 10 times worse. Yeah. Uh, just a uh, last word here about the media. You talked about uh, one of the differences between the George uh, Herbert Walker Bush year uh, a man I, I miss very much. I remember the wonderful times we had. I wanted to see him, and you sometimes let me see him, and you sometimes didn't let me see him. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> just so so many wonderful. You got more than your share. I got more than I deserved. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But I remember sitting there in his little office watching TV, and Ross Perot came on. Ross Perot came on the Today Show. I don't know why this just occurred to me. I think it's talking to you that brings back this stuff. And yeah. and Perot was talking about how George Herbert Walker Bush, President of the United States, wrecked his daughter's wedding. You remember this? He put whoop, yeah. he put whoopee cushions on the seats of the wedding. <laughs> I'm sitting there with the president while we're listening to this. And he turns to me in just his way and says, you believe this? Do you believe this? You believe what's going on here? It's, it's drifted, hasn't it? Very funny. Very funny. I'm sure you got a lot of those moments, but some wonderful moments with him, too. Bill, you got to keep going on uh, the liberal press and, and presenting your views. I have to continue doing that. And and um, we've just got to keep plugging away at it, and 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 we've got to encourage old fogies like you and me uh, that are out there. Not be shy and get on social media and be part of the discourse. Yes, sir. We thank you, John. I I uh, I didn't mean to insult you by talking to you as if you were a philosopher like me, or indeed an engineer. <laughs> Someone who actually knows something, actually knows something. And we appreciate it as always. Thank you very, very much. Everybody, Bill, take care. Love to your wonderful family. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. That was John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire and former White House chief of staff under President George H.W. Bush. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joel Farkas joins us now. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, how are you? Uh, good. How are you? Good. I want to is start. Your, is your home okay? Uh, well, my home, our home in North Carolina is intact. We are, you know, next to the ocean. Uh, and we have seen pictures someone took from a helicopter. The building is intact, but water, we may have a lot of water. Now, two years ago, we had a 13-foot alligator visit our outside our house, and I mentioned this to Claude, and he said, given what I'm reading, that alligator may be in your basement now. <laughs> it's, I, I, let me tell you, it's easier to deal with water than alligators. I'm sending my son down, <laughs> big, brave, strong son, to take a look. But really, tough situation for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, still recovering, still just a ton of water. This was a water event. Um, you know, most of your hurricane insurance is wind, but um, this was really a water event. It just, just the, the thing just hung there and just dropped tons of water on us. Yeah, that um, when it stay, when it doesn't move very fast and it stays in one place, that's way worse than uh, yeah. a category four or five yeah. wind event. But I'm glad, I'm glad people, you're doing well. I'm glad your home is okay because it's it's beautiful. But I'm also glad that everyone else is uh, pulling yeah. together. Well, at least unlike you, where you hang out sometimes. Southern California, at least the earth doesn't move. Well, that's why I spend a lot of time in, in Colorado where it's a mile above all of that. Stuff. Yeah, a good, a good idea. I remember my very good friend out there. I was giving a speech, staying in a hotel, and there was an earthquake. I called him up and I said, what are you crazy people doing out here? Of course, this is a theme for you and me on this podcast. What are you great people, <laughs> yes, crazy people doing out here? And I said, the earth is going to open up and swallow you. And he said, yeah, but we'll be we'll be totally chill and we'll look great. So. 
<laughs> with a very nice tan. With a very nice tan. You got it. Exactly. A real tan, too, not a spray tan. Joel, you've given us some real food for thought, some ideas. The audience loves listening to you. Did you have any re- more reaction to the uh, RV stuff we got? I mean, just, just some really interesting, funny stuff that we got. Uh, I don't know if you had further thoughts on it. We continue to get emails about millennials and, and recreational vehicles, and they all seem to at least are buying your argument that they're all leaving California and not heading to California. You know, that's great to see millennials have creativity. It's great to see millennials have jobs. Uh, you know, we even more seen some of yeah. the commentary that for the first time in a very long time, they have a future, they have opportunity for a career, an opportunity to have a family and uh, and buy a home. Those are that's the that's the dynamism and the excitement that uh, that uh, you know freedom in America brings. And I love to see that. I love to hear that um, younger uh, younger generations. Yeah. Um, Yep. aren't uh, dismayed. Now they're being creative and inventive and uh, and good for them. And uh, really, really fun exchange of emails. I want to start today. You wrote some great stuff. I want to talk about the San Francisco conference and all about fossil fuels. But I want to start today with, I was sitting with Mrs. Bennett last night. And we had just watched the interview with uh, Judge Kavanaugh and his wife. And then following that, we read uh, about how Ted Cruz and his wife were chased out of a D.C. restaurant. And I said, man, you know, this is a this is a tough town. The earth doesn't open up and swallow you and you don't get flooded in hurricanes. But in terms of uh, the attacks on people, character, the total, it seems to me, disregard for decency and civility on the part of the left. It's unbelievable to me. Uh, my friend, Alan Gelzo, whom you may know, he's given several lectures at Claremont. I was introduced to him actually by our mutual friend, Brian Kennedy, said the country's in crisis. We're in an existential crisis. And he said, other than the Civil War, the lack of unity um, in this country is uh, the greatest it's ever been other than the Civil War. Tell me about that or talk to me about the Kavanaugh thing. Or am I, as we say, cosmologizing my deficiencies because I live here inside the Beltway? I know the rest of the country's better and healthier, but it is poisonous here. Not only, let me just finish this little tirade. Not only now does the left want to destroy Judge Kavanaugh and not let him get a seat on the Supreme Court. They are even promising to pursue him if he doesn't get that seat and drive him out of his position on the appeals court based on the flimsiest of evidence, if any evidence at all. Oh, I have really one thought, and it's about scapegoats. And what do you do with a scapegoat? You, you slander a scapegoat. And when the country was formed, I, I, there's a, you know this better than anyone, there's a, a famous event, the trial of Captain Thomas Preston. In 1770, what was he tried on? Uh, there were colonists that there was a mob that were surrounding these British soldiers, of which he was the captain. There were shots fired, people died, and what were they going to do with him, Captain Preston, and his his uh, his soldiers? They were going to hang him and kill him. And the United States, before it was formed, thought the most important thing was to show the world that we had a fair and impartial legal system that. Captain Preston deserved competent defense. Who was that? Who was his lawyer? It was John Adams. He was the first vice president and the second president. Before the United States was formed, he defended Captain Preston against this mob who was scapegoating him and wanted to kill him. Turns out that the result of the trial, because of something called reasonable doubt, Captain Preston was acquitted. We have innocent until proven guilty. We have reasonable doubt, which is a concept of our, the founding of our country. We have the right to competent defense. We have a fair trial, for goodness sake. That's what we fought a war to become independent on. And what did we want to do? We did not want to scapegoat someone, slander them, and sue them. We wanted to defend those principles. And uh, here we are today. We found another scapegoat. The scapegoat is judge, and he's now trying to become a Supreme Court justice. And, and everything else that goes along with finding someone to be the, the poster child for, for all the ills that everyone else thinks our problems, here we are again. It's not new, not new, but it's it's a scapegoating and slandering and decimation of character. And I, 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 we've been lectured by recent politicians of, this is not who we are. We're better than this. Well, I don't need one more. I don't need one of those lectures ever again. 
because I know who we are. We are presumed innocent. We have the right to competent defense. We have the right to a fair trial. And damn those professors that keep teaching my kids. I've got four kids in college who keep teaching my kids the opposite. I spend every single week trying to unlearn for my kids what they're being taught by university professors. It's disgusting. And you're paying for it, too. A lot. Yeah. No, I know. You know, have you heard this uh, this facile argument made to what you just said? Yes, but this is not a trial. This is not a, a, a legal proceeding. So, you know, the burden of proof doesn't apply. <laughs> I've heard that. Oh, the thing I immediately said when I heard this objection that, you know, well, it's not a court of law, so we don't need burden of proof. Well, the question is, why do we have the burden of proof in a court of law? Because it, it appeals to our sense of fairness. I mean, it, it's not like it was just the idea was created for courts of law. It was instantiated in the law. It was placed into the law because of the basic premise that before someone is punished, there should be evidence, fairness, that you give people the benefit of the doubt. The left, which I think in my day going to school, all I could talk about was the Salem witch trials, right? You know, 100 years or more before the trial you were talking about. You're accused of being a witch. You're a witch. You're accused of being a molester of women. You're a molester of women simply by the saying of it. The reason we have that uh, procedure in the court of law is because it accords with a, a larger notion, a broader, more expansive notion that we should be fair and that people shouldn't be convicted simply on the on the on the say so of another person or penalized. Or we know what it, lo- we know what it looks office. like. We know what it looks like when the mob finds a scapegoat and wants to slander them. We know it. And that's the reason, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of def- defense of Judge Kavanaugh being the legal system over the last thousand years, how it evolved. And you're exactly right. It evolved because we know what happens when a person or group of people or a or, or any other kind of group is presumed guilty without a fair due process. We, there's, there, if there's anything that we know in this world that, that turns out bad, it's when you are guilty until proven innocent rather than innocent until proven guilty. I will defend that no matter who is being accused. And anybody else who doesn't choose to defend that, they're allowed. To think, thankfully, in this country, they're allowed to have an erroneous opinion. And they're going to be safe to be able to state that silly, erroneous opinion. But it doesn't mean they're right. And it doesn't mean that, that justice will prevail. It doesn't mean their opinion will prevail. Because reason, as Thomas Jefferson said, reason will combat it. This is a tough place. Again, not from water and wind and the earth opening up, but from man to man. I think of Thomas Hobbes, the beginning of his great book, Leviathan. Life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I don't know about solitary and poor, but it's nasty and brutish. And, you know, you talk about a message to people who are seeking higher office. Judge Kavanaugh, what he's going through with his wife and his daughters. How do you explain to those young girls, you know, what what their dad is being accused of? Mrs. Kavanaugh said last night, well, it's hard, harder than we thought, but it's their dad and they know their dad. I was very moved by that comment. You and I both have children. All you can do is explain to them that what Judge Kavanaugh's wife said, say that, you know, your dad. And the other other thing that you can you can you can teach your kids is in your life going forward, in your children's lives, in your children's children's lives, these principles are important to defend. And and you just hope you can you can have them be the soldiers going forward to defend justice and liberty and reason. They're gonna they're gonna have their own lunacy in their yeah. generations. Yeah, sure. They're gonna have their own lunatics in their generations. They need to be prepared with reasoned, rationed arguments to defend what's good. But you know what's lost, even if that lesson is learned, you know what's lost? The loss of innocence before it's their time. There yes. are things you shouldn't have to talk to young girls about when they're six yes. and seven and eight and nine years old. Yeah, but the Despicable. world intrudes. The world intrudes so intensively these days. And here in their case, they're hearing these things said about their father. And so this lesson it's, has to be it's, taught. It's as as a father of two daughters, I can't even imagine that my daughters would, at their ages, have to have listened yeah. to such. We'll see. We'll see how this comes out. But boy, you know, there's a political dimension here. And I sure hope people who hate what's going on turn out in November. My gosh. You know, we the mob should not be in the mob mob should should not not be be in charge of justice. That's correct. 
Let's talk about our favorite topic. I know you, you're a world traveler. You just got back from Italy, other places. You go everywhere. But um, our audience thinks of you as California Joel. You actually live in Colorado, don't you? Yes, yes. But you occasionally <laughs> drop into California, right? I was born there and uh, went to school there and uh, graduated college there. UCLA, right? Yes. I spent my formative years learning uh, learning things. On the golf there. team, right? Briefly. Very briefly. I hear you are really good. Claude's ears just perked up. Tell us what you think of Tiger's win before we get into other business. Congratulations. Um, the world sure wanted to tear him down, and goodness gracious, he's now the the, the finest ever again. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's, he, he gets uh, eviscerated, and now he's uh, put right back on the pedestal. And uh, Congratulations. Well, good for him. You know, I mean, I don't approve of the stuff he did with his wife and all that but my god you know the guy has fought back and he has had you know a rough road here i know he's multi-millionaire yes. but that doesn't take care of everything but i mean he has fought back and worked hard and suffered you know one defeat after another and of course these stories about his win they show on one side of the frame or one frame the picture of him winning the other picture is the picture when he was arrested or because he was under the influence <laughs> you know, of some medication you know he's older and to win when you're older i don't care if you're the yeah. finest golfer yeah. Yeah. Of your generation to win when you're older against 15 to 20 years of people younger than you who are the best of their year. That's impressive. How old is he? 35, 36? Claude is here. Yeah, uh, so he's 42. He Whoa. turns 43 in uh, December. 40. Oh my God, he looks cute. I guess 40 is a new 30. It is, it is for him, Joel. <laughs> Well, he's, he's got 20, he's playing against 20 years of yeah. the finest golfers of his generation yeah. who are all younger than him. What a oh, great win. Oh, good for him. Let's uh, let's go to California, Joel, as you're known uh, inaccurately. But anyway, we, we love your, well, yeah, I mean, you're a great witness. You know, you, you were there and you left. What happened in San Francisco? Tell us about this conference and what it means to America. Because it does mean something to America, right? I mean, this is about, again, as we're talking about with Kavanaugh, certain points of view prevail in our world in our country. We're in big trouble. Well, um, the climate justice warriors uh, gathered in San Francisco, pretty safe place to talk about and lecture the world about how great California is doing on CO2 emissions and what uh, what the uh, the climate warrior justice group is going to, in, you know, uh, push on, foist upon the rest of the world. It was hilarious to me to watch that because San Francisco to have a climate conference. Why don't they go to St. Petersburg or Moscow, Russia, or uh, Beijing, China? They're the biggest producers of energy. They're the biggest users, fastest growing users of energy in the world. Yet they float around in beautiful hotels in San Francisco and talk about how they're going to tell something that's important. Uh, they're cowards. They're actually climate cowards because they're not they're not going to go to Russia and tell them to stop producing oil and gas. They're not going to go to China and tell them to stop consuming polypropylene and polyethylene and gas and oil. They're not going to do that because they know, well, they're not going to be treated very well. Their biggest pelt on the wall is to beat up on Alberta, Canada and stop everything that's going on with the energy production in Alberta, which has Calgary and Edmonton as their major cities. Cities the size of you know, Salt Lake City or Tucson in the United States. Right. So they take all of their efforts, all of their money, all of their, their political connections, and just, you talked about scapegoats just a minute ago. Alberta's the, big, uh, the biggest scapegoat. And guess what? They stopped the Trans Mountain Pipeline. They stopped this. They stopped that. They stopped the Keystone Pipeline, which helps Alberta. Keystone's That's, back open, right? I mean, they're, they're going to start yeah, work on it. Yeah, it is. But um, so, I mean, they have they have done more to decimate the economy of Canada than anybody I can think of, including you know the uh, our president President Trump, who gets lambasted on, on regarding NAFTA discussions in Canada. President Trump hasn't done a darn thing to hurt Canada. No, just the, about the, milk. The and climate things. cowards have decimated yeah. the industry, the, the energy industry of Canada. You know, They've I was more to hurt anybody. I was just going to say they're sitting there talking about the environment in San Francisco. I'm an outsider. I haven't been there in years, but yeah, you know, they might just step outside their hotels and clean up their streets. I mean, I saw a picture of these guys in the hazmat outfits cleaning up needles and human waste. And my God, most beautiful, most traveled, most favorite destination in the world for many years. What's happened to that city? 
Texas is the number one state of growth. California is the number one state of poverty and homelessness. Oh, boy, um, that says a lot right there. Tell us about shale. There you go. Tell us about shale oil. Why um, you weren't invited well, to speak. Tell us why, in a few sentences, why you were not invited to speak at this conference. Well, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter what I have to say, but the number uh, in the last 15 years, there has been a 25% increase worldwide of consumption of oil. Increase. Hmm. You'd think all of these electric cars are somehow doing something to save the demand side. Um, production is going up. Where's the increase coming from? It's coming from Asia, India. That's where it's coming from. Population growth, middle classes getting bigger. Half the cars being sold in the future in worldwide will be purchased in Asia. Half. They want to invite people who will terminate, decimate, delete fossil fuel productions in places that they can be safely guarded. Uh, North Dakota, Alberta, Seattle, Washington, Vancouver. That's, 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 that's who they want to talk about. That's who they want to talk to. They're not going, they're not going where it's actually occurring and it's not going to change oil and, and gas consumption and oil and gas production will increase because the greatest producers of it are Russia, Saudi Arabia. The greatest consumers are China, Malaysia, Japan, Korea, mm. Mm. Vietnam, liquefied natural gas. There's so many new LNG processing plants being built around the world, being paid for by companies I've just described in those countries. And the reason it's happening is because it's actually reducing CO2 emissions. Natural gas reduces it. The United States is actually reduced their natural gas, I mean, their CO2 emissions. And actually, California, the 41 states in the United States had a greater reduction of CO2 emissions than California. Really? Um, really? They, That's very interesting, yeah, they, despite the boasts. I guess if you, have a, if you have a lot of money and you want to go to a party, go to a nice city and have a nice meal and feel good about your policy. What about, what's the future? Are they the future? No, um... They touted uh, uh, Justin Trudeau the, of Canada as being the future, the, the messenger of this great uh, concept, um, both in climate and both in terms of NAFTA negotiations. Uh, in NAFTA negotiations, uh, Mr. Trudeau had three major issues he wanted to have in the agreement. Uh, indigenous rights, gender, and climate. Those were his big issues. He's the, the worldwide spokesman. They love him. Well, he has succeeded in actually getting almost everybody to just despise what he said, because in the meantime, the Canadian uh, economy is getting decimated because of the energy industry, the, the, the attack, the attack on the scapegoat. The, the people in Canada, the Green Party, looked at Alberta and said they are a black eye on the world, Alberta. Again, they, they have their own scapegoat. It's Alberta. So uh, to try to save his political hide, he went to purchase this Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, it's now in court. The indigenous nations despise what he's doing because <laughs> they were going to be a participant, and then he took it away from them. Yeah. The Green Party hates him because he's pursuing it, uh, and the people in the oil and gas business hate him. The only people that like Justin Trudeau are the American press. Yeah, yeah. The only people who <laughs> this is the case with lots of people, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But um, it's um, uh, the future is not there. People can dispute what I've just said and have a different opinion. But in the NAFTA negotiations, what people don't are, are really not aware of the real the real issues that Canada is is a sticking point between Canada and the United States are two big things: the Canadian dairy industry and something the Canadians call their cultural industries. Now, what is that? The cultural industries are really print produ uh, print publications. It's uh, uh, movies and, and, and television. They view that as, they, those are, people don't realize in the United States, the dairy industry and the cultural industries of their, of their, of their printed media are protected industries in Canada. And protected that how? is protected what how? foreign, foreign uh, investors and foreign countries and foreign companies are not pr uh, allowed to be in those businesses. I see. Um, wow. They're wow. just not allowed. They're protected. They're exempt from any kind of what they call free. It's not free trade. They're, these industries are exempted. Can't go now, up and make a movie in Canada. No. And they view it as the juggernaut, the Hollywood juggernaut, which swallow okay. up their okay. industry so they keep them out. You don't even find a Barnes & Noble because Barnes & Noble wasn't allowed to sell books in, in Canada. Wow. I mean, that's how absurd those, those protections are. Can't bring my cows and chickens up either. Is that right? No. Milk no, and eggs. No, you can't. 
but 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 Canada is getting you know the future is not these 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 bumper sticker uh, slogans. The future is really let's look at how people really freely trade, and not how they have slogans to prohibit yeah. others. Yeah, um, and it's it's the the future is good for for reason I believe. But it's tough. It's tough sledding. And will our trade negotiations generally? I we only have two minutes left here, but I just want to get you the sort of the global perspective. The president's initiatives, tariffs, etc. Is this going to turn out okay? It's tough, as you just said. Well, it is. Is this going to turn out okay? <laughs> it's going to turn out just fine. So we, I talked about Alberta. There's also British Columbia, which is the coastal province, which is kind of like our California and Washington uh-huh. and Oregon. Uh-huh. So guess what? While while the Greens and the Sierra Club have decimated Alberta, the premier of, uh, of British Columbia, John Oregon, just approved is is, is approving a, a new major LNG plant in British Columbia. And guess where he was? Liquefied natural was overseas. gas. Yes, yes, with with Shell Oil Company. Guess where he also was traveling recently in China and Korea and the like, so that yeah. they could make sure that they bought LNG from British Columbia. Of course. And guess what else he was doing over there? What? Canada has tariffs on steel to these countries. To these countries, and he was negotiating a waiver of the Canadian tariffs so that they could go build the pipeline huh. and the and the LNG plants. Ha ha ha! It's it's just he, he can't it. even make this up. I got it. Yeah, I got it. So President Trump is on the right path. Maybe, um, maybe we'll do a little better job of exposing the hypocrisy. But um, he's only doing what every other country in the world is doing today. Got it. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Bill. That was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 